I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. A Los Angeles native, Chef Johnny Rayzone began his culinary career as an apprentice working as a garde manger at Figaro Bistro in Los Feliz. He worked under chefs like Thomas Keller in Beverly Hills, Gordon Ramsay in London, and Nobu Matsuhisa in West Hollywood, before becoming the executive chef at La Poubelle in LA's Franklin Village. Most people today, however, know him as the co-founder and head chef of Howlin' Ray's, the first Nashville hot chicken spot to open on the West Coast, and the restaurant, many would say, kick-started our national hot chicken craze. Johnny, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, we're recording this on April 15th, so it's seven years and one day since you opened your first brick-and-mortar location in Chinatown. So first, congrats on that milestone. Thank you. Definitely. It's been a long, fun, interesting journey. (laughs) And we will get into that journey in just one second. Listeners to this podcast are located all across America and even globally. So I want to start not only by establishing why it's such a pleasure to have you on, but also to ground our listeners in the significance of Howlin' Ray's and its role in kind of popularizing Nashville hot chicken across the United States and beyond. My first visit to your restaurant, the Chinatown location, was on August 5th, 2016. I first discovered Howlin' Ray's through the late famous food critic Jonathan Gold's July 1st, 2016 review in the Los Angeles Times. And I'd like to read an abridged passage from that review, if you'll allow me. Yeah, 100%. He wrote, quote, What happens when you take your first bite of Nashville hot chicken at Chinatown's Howlin' Ray's? You will aim to get as much of the fragrant skin as possible between your teeth. And you sigh with relief the experiences of salt, crunch, and garlic overlaid with the musty pungency of dried peppers, not nearly as bad as you thought. It is excellent fried chicken. Then the punch of heat lands. You may experience it almost as a blow to the chest. Your lips swell. Your scalp erupts in sweat. Your throat begins to close. You unconsciously mop your forehead with the back of your hand and suddenly there is a situation up there too. A sensation you may have experienced the last time you napped an hour too long on the beach. Your bloodstream flows with adrenaline, but then the endorphins kick in and you float on an eddy of bliss for a moment or two. Then you go back in for some more. The hot chicken has won, end quote. Now, (laughs) based on that review, on August 5th, I stood in line with a friend for two hours. And then I returned with three more friends on August 14th. And I brought another friend on August 19th. Then another on September 24th. And another on October 1st. And I brought seven more on October 20th. And then again on December 9th. And on and on (laughs) as the years progressed. And by the time the world shut down in March 2020, I had stood in line for at least two hours, 15 separate times. And I know for a fact, because I researched this, that there are fans of Howlin' Ray's out there that have me beat easily. So we spoke a bit about your culinary background in your intro, but I want to start at the very beginning. There's an iconic scene in Pixar's Ratatouille in which the cold, immovable Anton Ego tastes the eponymous dish in the third act of the film and is instantly transported back to his childhood, to the meal that made him fall in love with food in the first place. So my first question for you, Johnny, is what is that meal for you? Yeah, so it actually wasn't so much a meal as it was a lifestyle. I grew up as a kid enamored with basketball and the culture of what basketball had to it with camaraderie teams, different players having different attributes, etc. And so basketball was my life up until like 16, 17, until I had this coach that took the passion out from me. 
it was my fault for allowing someone else to deflate my passion for something. I was the kid that was wearing the weights to school on the ankles and first on the mile runs and just really doing it. But I guess he saw like, okay, this kid has some potential, so I'm gonna go really hard on him. But I think he went a little too hard. And I enjoyed playing street ball with older dudes at the park, you know, who were a little more skilled than maybe the individuals that I was playing with and then also getting berated from a coach. So what happened was then I started thinking about careers and I did have a meal that really inspired me when I was on a vacation trip to New Mexico where one of my friend's father, he made a burger and it was all just like local ingredients. It was like a hatch chili burger and it was actually bison, I believe. But everything was like so local and it just clicked in me like, man, I, I want to learn how to do this, cook like this, not necessarily cook a burger, but cook at a high level because that's something that I can have for the rest of my life. But also, let's say with basketball, I get injured or something, then I have to become like a sports writer or something like that or a coach. And I saw more opportunity and the ability to cook and take that so many different directions. So when I got back, I applied to a bunch of restaurant jobs and ordered a CIA textbook off of Amazon at the time. At the time, Amazon was just selling books, by the way. It wasn't like, <laughs> you know, like groceries and stuff like that. I remember those days, yeah. So I ordered a used copy of the CIA textbook, which is the Culinary Institute of America. And I landed at a job with a friend of my dad's at a French bistro just as a dishwasher and being able to learn garbage, like the salad station and the cold chucking oysters and things like that. And that was my first step in the door. It sounds to me, and we'll talk about this in a little bit after we go through the history of how Helen Ray started, but I would be remiss if I didn't point out this connection. It feels like the same drive and structure and discipline that you first found in basketball was something that also drew you to the culinary scene. It feels like that's kind of a binding tissue that also informs how you run Howland Race today. Oh, 100%. I saw so many similarities in the kitchen to being on a team. And on top of that, too, this is in the period of like Shaq and Kobe. Shaq was interviewed a lot and he actually took ballerina classes for his footwork. And he was like notoriously terrible at free throws and all this stuff. But the fact that he took ballerina classes for footwork in the post was something that clicked when I was in the kitchen one week where when you walk behind someone with like a raging hot skillet or a knife or something, you have to say behind or backs or even sometimes just tap them on the back. It is this dance of footwork and movement in such a confined space in order to produce amazing product, but also large volumes of that product. And so that was a similarity from my first passion that I saw in the kitchen life was that footwork, that camaraderie, that teamwork, the movement. And in Tom's Keller Kitchens, we call it like soignier, you know, when you can have finesse to your movements and finesse to everything having a purpose, you know, like when you turn and grab a spoon out of your bain marie, you have a towel right by it, pat it on the towel so that when you go to baste your steak and you turn around in the hot oil, there's no water going in the oil. So it doesn't like erode with fire. So all these little movements and these little finesse characteristics to being in a kitchen, I definitely correlated with basketball. 
It's a far cry from fine cuisine, but there is a scene in the movie The Founder, which talks about Ray Kroc. Exactly, yeah. Basically taking over McDonald's. You know the scene I'm probably talking about where... In the parking lot. Yes, where the McDonald's brothers have to figure out how to industrialize their food prep in a way where it's basically a dance. Everyone has exactly the role that they're playing. They know exactly when to move from station to station, so no one's bumping into each other. And it really is like ballet. Yep. We've used that scene so many times at Howlin. And it's so funny because it started one of the first weeks of my career. That scene it wasn't even born yet, but I saw that day to day. Now in Howlin, like we apply that with how to build out a restaurant, where certain equipment goes, what station is handling what responsibilities. And it's really a beautiful thing. I mean, the passion for cooking and being a chef for me has really spiraled into so many different aspects of skills as a human being, whether it's communication, movement, health, humility, so many different things in life that I've gained from this career and definitely really grateful for it. Let's go to the genesis of Howlin Ray's. It was 2014. You were working at Chef Sean Brock's restaurant, Husk, in Tennessee at the time. I believe it was either your first experience or one of your first experiences with hot chicken at a restaurant in Nashville called Pepper Fire, which was founded by owner and head chef Isaac Beard in 2010 after he first became obsessed with the dish in the late 90s. You once said in an interview, quote, being in the fine dining world, you're always eating at different restaurants and trying out new things. But it was a pretty shocking moment to have something like that for the first time in Nashville, end quote. So... Having worked at some of the best restaurants under some of the most renowned culinary masters, I imagine there at that point were few dishes you hadn't tried. So what was it about Nashville hot chicken, the preparation of it in that moment that broke through something inside of you that the other dishes just simply hadn't? Out of all the hundreds, maybe thousands of dishes you tried up until that point, what was it about that meal that changed the entire trajectory of your life? I think it's really interesting because my father, he did 3D comic books and he changed his name from Larry Miller to Ray 3D Zone. And he was in the punk rock scene and he was a cartoonist and basically a 3D pioneer here in Los Angeles for what he did. And one article he wrote for LA Weekly back in the day was about lowbrow, highbrow, how lowbrow can actually be highbrow. And what I'm referring to in that is that lowbrow cuisine, lowbrow food can actually be higher quality than highbrow food you're spending $40 a plate for or $300 for a tasting menu. I think there's some restaurants and there's these specialists in so many different cultures, whether it's Shabu Shabu or Hawken cuisine or Jalisco cuisine. Like There's so many different specialists on the lowbrow sector. It is actually highbrow in its execution and sourcing of ingredients. And when I had hot chicken for the first time, I've had a lot of like sous vide, you know, chicken breasts and so many different ways of executing chicken, but I'd never had it fried in a quarter piece like that at a low temperature for such a long period of time where it almost becomes saturated with the oil. And then on top of it, it's an oil-based sauce, so it's even more oil, but the oil is seasoned and flavored. And then the chicken meat itself is so tender. And then the outside crust is like shattered glass because it's in the oil so long. So it was such a interesting experience, you know, having it. And I've had it in some staple restaurants and it's been dry or whatever. But the dish itself and the composition of the dish with the white bread on the bottom, essentially acting as a paper towel and absorbing all that oil. And then the pickles on top, 
with a little acid or sweetness, depending on what type of pickle that restaurant uses. It was like a perfect dish. It just totally made sense to me. It was a definite eye-opener of an experience to have a whole quarter piece of chicken fried, and then on top of it to have these raging heat levels that are honestly like pretty not common for a lunch dish unless maybe you're like a hardcore Southern Thai guy. Whenever I've tried to explain the appeal of Nashville hot chicken to friends who haven't had it yet, it's almost like a, a sadism masochism thing where it's like you're getting punched in the face, but you love it. And it's really hard to explain that if you haven't personally experienced it. Yeah. And to cite Jars and Gold, the hot chicken is one, you know, and so that was a big part of bringing it to LA. We wanted to keep that integrity. You'll see a lot of hot chicken restaurants now. And I think it is much easier to serve it less spicy. But the interesting thing that we're getting a lot now is like, oh, well, I had the hot over here, hot over here or whatever. And we're having to like train our cashiers on, it's not a competition or anything like that. We're just trying to keep it as authentic as possible. You know what I mean? So if you go to Bolton's and you have the hot there, it is, it's really hot. No one gets the hot pretty much. And then they have extra hot on top of it and XXX hot. So we wanted to keep it authentic, but it is much harder because you want to minimize in a business the amount of complaints. You want to minimize the amount of returned food and stuff like that. And so if there's a lot of people who are like, oh, I can handle the hot, we have to spend a little bit of extra time you know, on the cashier explaining what type of peppers or the type of heat level, or we'll even just give free samples out so that they can enjoy the food because LA has had, from my experience, it likes spicy 100%, but it has a lot of clientele that think they're good with hot or extra hot. But then when they go to like a hardcore Thai place like Jitlada or something like that, it just rips their face off. Yes. In fact, I remember a quote from Julian, who's now the executive chef. He had Helen Race for the first time and he's like, no, nah, I got this. I'm Mexican. I can handle it. And then very quickly after he was like, ah, I don't think I can handle as much heat as I thought I could. And I think to your point, Johnny, the plus and minus of Nashville hot chicken gaining as much popularity in Los Angeles and around the country as it has in the last half decade or so, and the fact that other restaurants, maybe in a pursuit to be quote unquote more mainstream, are ratcheting down their heat levels. And so it sets an expectation for people. I've had so many conversations with friends when I brought them to Helen Race for the first time. And I always say, hey, just start out with the medium. And they'll be like, well, no, I, I can handle spicy. I was like, just start out with the medium. And one thing I have noticed recently, at least in the last few times I've gone to your Pasadena location, the cashiers will literally sometimes try and dissuade someone if it's their first time from ordering above a certain heat level. Or they'll say, hey, let me just grab a tender from the back real quick so you can try it so you know for sure that you're going to enjoy it. Yeah, because it's our jobs as chefs and hospitality specialists to ensure that you have the best experiences possible. So some people, though, don't get me wrong, our cashiers and our staff will be able to identify what it is they're coming for. Is it for that heat rush? Is it for that buzz? And they really want to try that, you know, and kind of experience that because that's another thing about hot chicken is that it's not like just getting lunch. It's an event kind of thing where, okay, I'm going to bring my homie Jose down there and he thinks he's got hot. I told him, I warned him, but he wants to do it. So we're going to get a few of their upper heat levels and we're going to see if he can hang. And then all of a sudden he has it. He gets an endorphin rush. He starts sweating. He starts getting a little loopy because his endorphins kick in. And then you have this memory and this moment in time of, oh, remember we went down to Howland and Jose tried the extra hot and then he just pooed his brains out. You know, like <laughs> it's an experience. It's like going in a movie or something like that. And a big thing that Thomas Keller teaches is like, if you can, as a chef, create memories or invoke memories 
with your food, that's success to him. And so there's a dish that he does with lobsters and peas and carrots. And the peas and carrots inspiration was from the frozen meals he was served as a kid where he had frozen peas and carrots in that little side container in those frozen microwavable meals. So there's a lot of tie-ins to that. And for me, a big part of my passion for hot chicken is that not only memories are being created, but also it's an experience. And also then when you tie in the hospitality and the generosity of hooking people up with all these different things and creating like a business model that's not so profit-based, but more repeat customer-based where it's like, you know, we take care of you. That's exactly what kind of got me. The way that I've described my first experience with your sandwich and how I've heard it described so many times by friends and family who've had it, I... (laughs) I'm nerding out a little bit here, Johnny, but every time I go, I always take a photo of the person right before they bite into the sandwich if it's their first time. Because the way that they describe it afterwards, like almost to a person, is that they feel high. Yeah. It's like you said, the adrenaline that's kicking in as your face starts to get flush and your body's almost reacting like, am I in danger right now? The adrenaline that starts pumping through your body does feel like a once in a lifetime experience that you might have with some other places like the Thai food you mentioned earlier. But it's a very rare experience to have because most places simply just don't go that hot. Definitely. And even in the Jonathan Gold article, I think there was an excerpt about him talking about sweat dripping down his scalp. (laughs) He's so great. Yeah. I mean, my dad was a huge fan of his. And that's why I think he shouted him out in the article. He's such a great writer because I could totally see (laughs) sweat dripping down his head as he's eating it. And I think he talked about something in his fingernails, you know, the spices just getting underneath there. And it's just such painting a picture that experience, the same when you get Indian food or really spice-heavy food, you get a buzz off of it, whether it's endorphins or you know your body reacting to the combination of all these spices. Okay, so let's get back to the start of Helen Ray's. You took out a loan on your wife Amanda Chapman's car. The two of you took a loan out. I think her car was a Fiat at the time to get a down payment for the Helen Ray's food truck. Before launching that food truck, and I think well before you knew you might have had something truly special on your hands, you had previously only worked already established successful restaurants. So what was it like in that moment, taking that loan out on that car and taking that leap into the unknown? Do you remember how you felt? Well, what helped me a lot in that was the severity of the experience of finding my father dead in the bathroom, just naked after a shower. That was so severe of a experience that it kind of tilted me to the point of like, okay, life is really short. And it's like, I don't know if you curse on your podcast, but like F it, let's do this. And who cares what people think? It's insane because now there's like so many franchises, so many different, you know, like concepts and all that stuff. And at the time I was thinking to myself, like, yeah, if they don't get it and they don't understand it, you know, like the hot chicken, so what? At least I tried. And it's funny because we weren't serving Sandoz. We were just doing quarters and it wasn't that busy at all. And people weren't even like, we didn't have lines. You know, the lines really started to come when we launched the Sando. But in that moment, it was very, it was scary. Yes. But because I went through something so severe or kind of like traumatizing like that, it gave me fearlessness. And this is something that I like to teach my staff and work with my staff on because life is constantly giving you issues and problems and difficulties. It's just constantly going to get harder and harder. And it's all about how you deal with it. And so I took that experience and I allowed it to give me strength instead of enabling it to make me weaker as an individual. I took it and ran with it like, okay, because I went through this, 
no problem. I'm going to take an unsecured loan and have the car loan, but also another loan. So we owe $40,000 for a $15,000 car and risk it all because it's something I believe in and want to do. And also I waited so long in my career to become, let's call it like executive chef or the boss that that's a huge piece of advice that I I give to a lot of people because people want to jump too quick. And now with the business, I feel like I'm doing really, really well because of all those years that I waited to become the boss. We're talking like 10, 12 years and you have culinary students that are becoming executive chefs running their own restaurants after two years of being in a restaurant. And some of them, they'll work for sure. But you know, when you have all those years kind of added up, it just gives you more to teach your employees. It gives you more resources to draw upon when stuff hits the fan. So it was very scary, but there was a lot of things in my life that gave me confidence leading up to that moment. One of my favorite conversations on this podcast was all the way back in episode 12. I spoke with a brilliant woman out of the UK. Her name's Aisha Kambi. She's a fashion stylist and a cultural commentator. And her brother was tragically murdered in his 20s. And she saw this as a turning point for her because it was, as I'm sure finding your father dead was deeply traumatic. It led her to kind of spiral for some time. But she had this quote in our conversation that has stuck with me ever since. And she said, if death does not teach us how to live, then it's in vain. Her brother's death was a turning point for her because it inspired her to strike off in a new direction that she had previously been hesitant to do. And it sounds to me like the tragic and untimely death of your own father was something that was almost in its own way a gift for what it did for you. 100%. And that's a great quote. And if she came up with that one, that's really brilliant. It reminds me of brevity as a soul of wit. It's so short and concise, but has so much to it. I totally agree with that. And I think the hard part about it is that a lot of human beings will either feel sorry for themselves, beat themselves up, or go into this stage of denial or tragedy and despair and depression. And that's almost the easier way or, you know, just maybe have a condition to operate. But it is something that you can take and it's almost like a gift. A door closes and another one opens because you never saw that perspective before. And that's what I try to help with any of the employees or friends and family that are going through difficult times and stuff like that to really utilize it as a opportunity of teaching. You mentioned how the lines didn't really start forming outside your food truck until you came up with the sandwich, which is known on the menu and in Howl and Ray's lore as the Sando. So how long was the truck running before you launched your now famous Sando? And can you walk us through the moment when you first created it? It was about three or four months. All we were serving were like quarters. We were keeping it authentic, maybe almost too authentic to Nashville. In Nashville, there was no sandwiches being offered other than, let's say, Bolton's Hot Fish, where you would get a white bread on the bottom, and then you would make a sandwich out of it. So in Nashville, there's zero sandwiches, zero hot chicken sandwiches. So I wanted to keep it authentic to Nashville, and I was going to stick with like quarters and southern sides. But I mean, LA, they're like, what is this? This is big. How come it's only one piece, but it's actually two pieces or three, technically, because it's not cut up. It's just served as one. You know, So there's a lot of like education and explaining with the customers and stuff. But then my wife and I think it was like Farley from Eater LA and Matt, we invited to do a tasting and they were like, oh, you guys got to do a sando. And my wife was always preaching about a sandwich, you know, like doing a sando. So then we went to, you know, the drawing board and all our recipes, they're done in a, in a manner in which it's 
fine dining standards. So what that means is we gram every single thing out with like one of the drug scales or the diamond scales, and it goes to 0.0001 grams. So that when we scale it, because some scales can only measure, let's say, two grams as their minimal point. So if you put on, let's say, dried oregano on the scale and you put a little bit on it, it won't give you a tick or a reading until it's two grams because that's its minimum point. So we use very fine scales to develop our recipe. So when we scale it out, it's super accurate in terms of like multiplying the recipe. So we just went down and did like 30, 40 different renditions and we would isolate all the different variables, whether it's the chicken that was being used for it. Like we started at the top, you know, okay, dark meat or white meat. And we got to white meat and then we started the dredge, you know, and then once we were happy with the dredge on that, then we had our chicken to kind of work with. Then we started with like 20 different buns. And then we dialed those down to like three or four because each bun would work differently with different components. And then we started talking about what a chicken sandwich and the layers on a chicken sandwich work well and where everything goes, whether it's like slaw on the bottom, slaw on the top, sauce on top and bottom, sauce on bottom only, how many pickles on it, how thick are the pickles. And then in the slaw, how thick is the cabbage sliced? Is it mayo-based? No, we don't need mayo-based. So we do oil and vinegar-based slaw. And then we apply kind of like a Korean technique of maceration to it so you don't get gassy. There's just so many different, in terms of the recipe creation, elements to it that it took a long time. Like we just released ranch and that took me four months. And it's funny because all the chefs at the Chinatown location would see me coming in, tasting the ranch, giving them samples, getting them involved, asking them their true opinions. Like, is this garbage? Is this not? How does this compare to this ranch and this ranch? What are your thoughts? Give me the raw, nitty gritty, negative stuff because that's what I thrive off of. And it was like three months just doing the exact same thing with Graham's on like what makes a ranch. What is it about ranch that people associate ranch with it? Like, okay, is it the buttermilk? Is it the herbs? Is it the tanginess? Most places use citric acid or lemon. So I could go on and on in terms of all the different elements and what it takes to develop a recipe. But it really was a fine dining approach to such a simple dish. And that's why I say lowbrow, highbrow. And it speaks to why I think every single experience I've had at Howland Ray's is exactly the same. Because I've been to other hot chicken restaurants, probably half a dozen different ones around Los Angeles. And the same could be said for restaurants in general that have multiple locations or even a single location where I'll go and I'll be like, man, this one was really good. And then I'll go again a couple of weeks later. I'm like, this doesn't taste as good. And then I'll go again. Oh, this one's better. Then I'll go again. Eh, not as good as last time. Now you're adding human beings. Right. So you're not cooking with just raw ingredients now. You're actually cooking with people. That's what we found to be really good at because of our relations with customers and hospitality and stuff. So we treat our employees as if they're customers because essentially they are, and they're going to talk about your restaurant. You're cooking with people, and that's a huge variable. That's a big part of why restaurants in general can be inconsistent. But as a leader of a kitchen, you have to set up the best structures to make it as easy as possible for those individuals not only so they enjoy the job, but also so that the product is consistent. And that's very difficult to do and why we only have two restaurants and have declined many, many offers to franchise and license. Yes. I have to imagine you've been approached by many, many, many people. Something you said in your recent answer reminds me a lot of a conversation I had with Andy Lapsa. He's the CEO of Stoke Space. They're in the process of making a fully reusable rocket. He formerly worked at Blue Origin And now they're working at Stoke Space to make a rocket that is fully reusable, not just the first stage, 
like SpaceX, but the entire rocket, and not only reusable, but a rocket that they can launch, shoot a satellite into space, land the entire rocket, and use it again 24 hours later, which is currently technologically impossible. But his team is laser-focused on, okay, how do we build this rocket so it's as easy to inspect and easy to fly again as a plane? And one of the things that you just talked about reminded me of his first principles approach. The approach that he has is like, okay, every single engineering and design choice is going to be funneled through a single vision. And that vision is, does this choice get us closer to or further away from a 24-hour turnaround time for our rocket? And if the choice gets us further away from that goal, we throw it away. If it gets us closer to that goal, we keep it. So that's the funnel through which every engineering choice is made. So I guess my question to you is, and you've spoken a bit about this, but I'd love to dig into it with you. What is the Howland Rays funnel? What are you filtering all your decision-making through from a first principles perspective, whether those decisions are about food or operations or customer service? What's the singular goal on your mind that influences all your choices? You know, it's really interesting you bring this up because I was fortunate enough to tour Square headquarters with Jack Dorsey at the time when he was CEO of Square and Twitter. I asked him something along those lines of like, you know, we're getting a lot of franchise things. They're all telling me, you got to do it, strike while the iron's hot, all that stuff. What's your opinion about it? And this kind of answers the question. He said, any decision you make in business needs to go back to the very beginning of why you started this company. And does it accomplish and align with the goals of why you started the company? And that should make decision-making moving forward a lot easier. And so I thought that was brilliant advice. Our singular goal and our mission with Talon is, in the beginning, you know, it, it was to introduce the city to something that I fell in love with that nobody was doing. And I feel like with that, to introduce it with the most integrity is one of our big goals. And we still amazingly get so many first-time customers in both locations currently to this day, like... It's insane how many first-time customers, and it's actually worked in our favor that there are so many hot chicken places because they find out about us through them. And so we're grateful for it. And that's why with a lot of the franchise guys, like the guys that did Dave's, like the Wetzel Pretzel Group, they approached us and for about a year, two years, we just kept saying no, no, no. And then eventually they said, well, we're going to find someone else. And I said, that's totally fine. And the CEO showed up opening week at our Pasadena location and was scoping it out and everything. And that's, it's all fine. I don't have any negative feelings or anything like that towards that. It was our decision to keep it small and family because going back to our singular goal, culture and community was very, very important to us. The culture with employees and the culture with the customers and that hospitality and a big aspect and a big component to why we did blow up so much was something that not a lot of people talked about was our hospitality and the way we ran our business and the way we treated our staff. And that's been a huge secret to our success. It was run like a real family-owned, happy restaurant where it's not just about profit margins. And it's not about all these bottom lines. You know, in the first few months, my accountant's like, your food costs are too high and stuff like that. And I was like, no, this is going to work because who are we reporting to? Are we reporting to you? We pay the accountants, right? And then Amanda and myself, we'll pay ourselves if we need to or whatever, but let's keep it in the business, keep the business growing and keep investing it there. And we don't have anyone above us saying you got to open up 20 units or you know increase our valuation and get 40 units and then a few on the East Coast so that we can have a higher valuation because that's what you know the investors want to see or something like that. So 
that has been a huge point of our success. Essentially, the question that you're asking and, and why it's such an important question for any business model or any entrepreneur is your singular goal. What do you want to do? And so for us, it was just simply introducing the city to a dish, serving it with the utmost integrity and paying respect to where it came from and the families that created and came up with this dish. And then to have a company culture with the customers and employees that is just outstanding and it takes care of everybody because you don't have these rich dudes at the top wanting their their investments back or anything. I think that's well said. I mean, you see this tension when a company goes from private to public. You see it all the time. All of a sudden, the goals and missions of a company can change because they're no longer beholden just to the mission of the company, but also to the shareholders who might have different wants and needs than, let's say, the founders of the company have. And in regards to choice making, because you compared yourself to another hot chicken place, I don't think there's personally any right or wrong choice, but every choice does come with consequences. In your case, the choices you've made have limited by your own choices, something that you've wanted to do. It's limited Hal and Ray's ability to grow, but with accelerated growth also comes consequences. One of my favorite food stands in New York City, I would go every single time I visited was this place called Halal Guys on 6th Street. Yeah. Shout out to Dan Rose that he approached us as well. He's a big part of bringing them nationwide. And anytime I visited New York City, I would always go and it was always delicious. And then they exploded in popularity, expanded to hundreds of new locations around the world. And when they came to Koreatown, I told my buddy who'd never been to the New York location, I said, all right, we got to go. It's transcendent. You're going to love it. We'll have it after a couple drinks, which is what you should do. While he's eating it for the first time ever, I'm trying the Koreatown location. And it wasn't bad, but it wasn't New York. It just wasn't. And I could see as he was tasting it, he was like, it's fine. You know, like those moments where you build up a favorite song to a friend? You're the hype man. <laughs> exactly. And I just wanted to be like, can we just go to New York real quick? Because <laughs> something has changed. But in regards to choice making, this is something I've always been curious about when it comes to carving out a space with a very specific dish. I imagine it's difficult to strike a balance between authenticity, you know, like having a dish be recognizable as the thing it represents so that anyone familiar with that dish will instantly recognize it, right? Like Nashville hot chicken and balancing that with originality or making a mark within that space. So you tried a bunch of different hot chicken spots as you prepared to launch your food truck in June of 2015. So when formulating the recipe for your hot chicken, what was that process like as a chef of striking that balance between making it taste undeniably like Nashville hot chicken while also making it so even with a blindfold on, someone would know I'm eating Howlin' Ray's hot chicken. How did you do that? You have to understand the first point of what you're saying, which is what is hot chicken, right? And what does it taste like? What does it smell like? What does it feel like? How is it cooked? And so you have to first understand that before you make any spin on it. And that was a big part of why it was so important for me to go out there and just burn my guts out and try all the different heat levels and even like the off-menu ones, they wouldn't offer to like out-of-towners and stuff. And after doing that and understanding it, and then understanding the history of it, what was the purpose of this dish? A woman trying to light up a husband that she thought was cheating. So it is a revenge dish. Such a great story, by the way. Yeah. And it's like <laughs> understanding it first is step one. And then step two is 
after having so many different variants of it, understanding what it is about those variants that you like. And this is hard for a lot of people because they may not believe in themselves or trust themselves enough to think that their opinion can actually move waves where they're like, oh, yeah, I like it like this, but I don't know if all the people will like it like this. So trusting your gut instinct on something that you know about and you are passionate about, and in my case, it's being a chef and what I feel like you know tastes good and what I feel like other people will like, select people because you cannot please everybody. I'm referring to like the heat levels and why we haven't dumbed it down. But trusting yourself and being like, okay, so Hattie B's is a little sweeter. I like their heat but I don't like how sweet it can be because I want to be able to put in multiple reps, maybe have two hot chicken dishes throughout the week. And then Prince's is a little more heavy using like a heavier type of lard or, or oil to it, but their spice and their saltiness is just super on point. Sometimes it can be a little salty, sometimes too oily. And you can only have one of those a week, maybe, maybe two pretty soon your health is going to, you're going to feel it. And then Bolton's has a very dry rub. As soon as you put it to your mouth, breathe in the spices by accident because it's kind of like powdery on top. Knowing like, okay, I don't want it to be necessarily too much like that. So then you take all these different elements or even Aki at 400 Degrees, who's a great friend and years ago flew out there and cooked with her at the Hot Chicken Festival. Even before I think Helen or Helen was in its first like month or something like that and did that because she invited us and that was great fun. But each different hot chicken shack in Nashville has their own style to it. And it's funny because Bolton actually, he worked at Princess and then he got known for his fish and his hot chicken. And they're all so different, really, really different. Even Pepper Fires and all the different places, but they're all like a similar dish. I wouldn't even say that if you order, like this is essentially what I did, you order let's say 15 hot chicken dishes, all the same, let's say it's a breast quarter, all the same heat level in Nashville. And you put them all in a room on a table and you try them all, you're going to be like, so which is hot chicken? You know, because they're so different and they have so many different variants to it. Right. And so what I did was I took the favorite components of each one that I, that I liked. Like I liked Bolton's heat level a lot. When I say heat level, they're hot. They're extra hot. Like I really liked how their heat levels worked and it was very aligned with Prince's. So I knew that I wanted to be on that scale, let's say on the Scoville scale in my heat levels. Hattie B's had a pretty good execution because the Bishop family, they were doing restaurants for years. You know, they had a meet three, I think it was Bishop's meet and three for years. So they, they knew restaurant execution. It's been in the family. They have consultants. They have a team working with them. And so they had a pretty good execution in terms of technique and kind of cook style and things like that. And so like some of the execution, I was like, okay, I like that, but I'm actually going to apply some of the more fine dining techniques that I've utilized in the past. And then, you know, like Aki's sweetness was perfect. It wasn't too sweet. It wasn't too savory. And, and then I like that component. So basically, I drew inspiration from all the different hot chicken restaurants in Nashville at the time and tried to take the positives from each one and combine them into one kind of recipe. And so we basically wrote down the characteristics of the dish that we wanted to focus on, why we liked it so much, and basically applied that to the recipe. Same like that singular goal thing 
all the tweaks, all the changes, whether it's, okay, let's take out 0.4 grams of you know black pepper and then replace it with like 0.1 of salt or 0.1 of sugar or whatever. You know, all those little moves had a direction that it was going towards. And so that's kind of like how the recipe came across. The way that you describe this and how the taste of a piece of hot chicken from a given restaurant will affect how much of it you want to eat when you want to return and eat it again, et cetera. It reminds me of, (laughs) funny enough, the Pepsi challenge from the 80s. I don't know if you remember this. There was a series of commercials where Pepsi was having blind taste tests, right? Where they had soda A and soda B. It was totally blind. There were these little, almost like shot glasses of soda, unmarked, and they would film this. And they'd have people come up and be like, try a sip of each and tell us which one you prefer, right? Now, at this time, Pepsi was a distant second after Coca-Cola. And like three out of four people in all these blind taste tests kept choosing Pepsi. And Coca-Cola kind of started freaking out because although their sales weren't dropping, they did their own internal tests in a similar fashion, unmarked little shot glasses of Pepsi and Coke. And their own internal tests also showed that three out of four people preferred Pepsi to Coke. But again, the sales weren't budging at all. So they were like, what's going on? Then one of the Coke employees had the idea of, wait, let's have people go home with 12 packs of unmarked Pepsi and 12 packs of unmarked Coke. And then at the end of the week, tell us which they prefer. And it reversed. Three out of four people preferred Coke over Pepsi. What they realized is, is that Pepsi was sweeter than Coca-Cola. So when you just have a tiny amount of a sweet drink, just in a little shot glass, you're going to prefer the sweetness over the, let's say, less sweet forward taste of Coke. But when you want to drink entire cans of it or 12 packs of it, return to it over and over throughout a week, that sweetness all of a sudden becomes cloying. And so that's just a really interesting story about how what the taste is that dominates whatever you're serving, whether it's a piece of food or a soda or otherwise, affects not only how you enjoy it in the moment, but how often you want to return to it in the future. 100%. And to put it in simple terms, I was very fortunate to work with the people that I've worked with in the past and the chefs. They said a sauce has to be drinkable. So when we were seasoning our sauces for, you know, whether it's a pigeon and foie gras dish or something like that, if it was too salty or too savory or something like that and not drinkable, it wasn't correct and we'd have to remake it. You want to be able to drink it and consume a good amount of it because that's what makes a certain dish craveable is because you want to go back for another bite. The same like sushi, you know, you have your fish and then you eat a piece of ginger to reset your palate and you're ready to go back in. I was taught that at a very young age from a few chefs and they're very fortunate for that and definitely utilize that in our, you know, model and in our recipe because craveability is something that's very important. Like you said in the beginning of the interview, you know, I went there this date and then this date and then brought people back. (laughs) If it's inconsistent, you know, you wouldn't have trusted to bring your friends who are out of town or family and stuff. Yeah. That's number one is consistency. But on top of it too, you maybe had an itch to go back and get it, you know, because it didn't weigh you down too much or you're not like, "Ah, I don't know if I want to have the nightmares again because (laughs) of the the amount of, you know, saturation of whatever, you know? So yeah, sometimes it's just about doing the basics really, really good for us. That's been the case with hospitality, taking care of our staff and also just treating the chicken and the dish with the utmost respect for its origins, where it came from the families, and then also just honoring the ingredients as well to allow them to shine and be their best selves. 
You know, with the extreme level of detail that you put into all the food that you serve at Howland Ray's, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about the unique challenges that hit all restaurants in 2020 when the pandemic led to nationwide, statewide closures across California. You went from a situation where I imagine, you know, I don't got the numbers, but I imagine 90% of your customers were eating your food minutes or even seconds after it was served to a situation where customers might not get their food until 30, 40 minutes later. And that's assuming that the Postmates driver was on time to pick up their order. One of the things that separates Helen from the rest of the pack, for me, in my view, motivated by your fine dining background, is that laser focus on quality and consistency. I'm getting the exact same bird. I'm getting the exact same sandwich. I'm getting the exact same coleslaw every single time. So with the lockdowns that came in 2020 and the pivot to 100% Postmates delivery, a fundamental aspect of your quality control, when a customer would actually be served your food, was all of a sudden out of your hands. So how did you adjust for that? And what was your decision-making process like when you decided to make that leap to delivery? Were there must-haves that you needed in place with that deal with Postmates, deal breakers that you wouldn't tolerate? Just walk us through that moment. It's so interesting to me. Yeah, 100%. And it goes back to going through a difficult thing like losing a father. It's the same idea when there's a death. Because essentially, like my wife put it very bluntly, she felt like something died within the company when COVID happened because we were known for lines. We were known for passing out Sandos over the counter with two hands. And, you know, that social interaction, that banter, the amount of like Instagram stories taken within the restaurant. But with that, though, I applied the same mentality that I had when my father passed. It is way more difficult to operate a restaurant, but have the Mamba mentality in the sense of like, okay, what are we going to do now? You know what I mean? How are we going to make it even better now? Because we can still make it better now even with purveyors, like where you buy your chicken from, having issues because their workforce isn't there because of a COVID outbreak or whatever, or shipping all of a sudden costs going up, cost of goods going up, all that stuff. We already had a natural buffer because we weren't profit-driven where you know the price of chicken skyrockets and okay, fine, we'll deal with it. We'll get through this. You know, Labor goes up, all these different things. And the mentality is what got us through that on a bigger picture response to your question. It was taking the situation and figuring out how to make it better. And so little details involved on that are negotiating with Postmates because I feel like with a lot of the third-party apps during that time, they had everyone buy the balls because you needed them. So they're able to market up their percentages or whatever. But in our situation, yes, we needed them, but I wasn't going to take something that I knew was not scalable and good for the singular purpose of quality culture and consistency and all those different ideas. If it went against that, and then all of a sudden I'm stressing about we lose money on a on an order, it doesn't make sense for a business. So I had to really shift my role, I guess, within the company from like chef to like just negotiation, laws, legalities, contracts, all that stuff, and really dial in something that was going to be fruitful and also tap into whatever was being offered, whether it's with PPP, all that stuff, and then also figuring out certain aspects to Postmates and third-party apps that I knew I could improve with my background and offering that insight to them because that's very valuable to them because not all their restaurant vendors are, are maybe like offering that service or they have the respect 
for the vendors to be able to change certain algorithms within their API technology, like their, their software and stuff. So we were able to set up things like auto batching and where drivers would already be showing up when a ticket comes into the kitchen and all these different things based around quality. Because if you can connect the dots on any deal or any relationship, essentially, of making it a win-win-win situation for everyone where their app gets better by partnering with us, we get certain abilities and certain rates and all that stuff because we're offering that to them. And then the drivers are happier because they're showing up to the restaurant, food's ready. You know, they're not showing up and then having to wait too long and they get all, even if it's like two minutes, sometimes they'll get upset, you know, creating a win-win-win situation for everyone. You may not feel like you have it right now, but the more you think about it and the more open you are to new ideas and different perspectives and the fact that you don't know everything will really open up so many different things. So our world in terms of Halen has opened up so much since COVID where now our product is even more consistent. We're selling like double, triple the volume that we're selling pre-COVID. The branding and the, the different brand collaborations that we have in the works and that we have done have been like just shocking to me as, a, as an individual, like collaborating with Adidas on a shoe and just so many different things that are happening. The employees are so happy. The, the restaurant workforce is so clean and clear and paid very generously and... We have now two outlets. So like if you want a quick, there's not like a two-hour line at Chinatown anymore, but it's still serving more chicken than it served pre-COVID. And you can get it quicker, whether it is showing up and, and placing an order. And then if you want that kind of dining experience, it's not exactly the same, but it is a dining experience with beer and wine and waffles on the weekends and all that. You can bring your family down to Pasadena. So we actually came out stronger from a difficult, difficult situation for restaurants. And don't get me wrong, it is very difficult now to operate restaurants. And me and Amanda were talking, we're so fortunate and so glad that we did not overexpand or did not open up so many restaurants because at the end of the day, we want to do something that's going to have a legacy to it. With our lives, we want to be able to create a legacy. And if we're to open up 2030, that's going to be very difficult to create a legacy with that where it's around for years because it's not just writing a trend. It is in itself something sustainable that it doesn't have to rely on trendiness or something else because it's got so much more to it. You can tell there's more quality and life behind and, and culture to the company. And that's always been our goal. Our mentality helped us through covid get to the point where we are actually stronger than we've ever been as a company. And also with our staff too, we utilized, like how many chefs will tell you that they scheduled speech coach, a communications coach with their top tier employees and did that every week, you know, for months over Zoom and learning the ability to communicate clearly, efficiently, how to correct somebody, how to implement something called Q&I, which is quote, name impact, a big communication thing within huge companies on how to correct somebody. It just opened us up so much to improve on so many different things. And now some of these top guys, like they're at, you know, like six figure incomes. And it's amazing because they don't come from college backgrounds. So they don't come from these privileged, you know, like lifestyles. And now they're able to make equivalent income as these other individuals. And so it's very inspiring for me 
to be at where we're at now. And a big part of that has been the mentality and the approach and the way that we've looked at it. This might sound like a strange comparison speaking about food at first blush, but there was a guest I had on, a journalist and author by the name of Steve Hendricks, who wrote a whole book on the art and science and history of fasting throughout the world. And he talks a great length about a phenomenon known as autophagy, something that greatly increases when you fast. So when your body is not having to focus every day on eating and the energy and power that's required within your body to eat every day, and it's kind of left to its own devices and doesn't have anything to do, autophagy starts to increase. What autophagy is, is cell repair. So when your body is freed from the everyday task of having to focus on eating all the time and the intense amount of energy that comes from processing that food and sending it through your gut, et cetera, et cetera, it looks inward and repairs your cells, which can lead to reduction in things like rheumatoid arthritis and other ailments can be cured through fasting. The reason I say that is it sounds like from what you're saying, you took the opportunity presented by the lockdown to perfect a lot of your internal practices because you no longer had to worry, okay, at 9 a.m., there's going to be a two-hour line out the door and we are going to be swamped until we close. And then we have to start prepping again for that long line that's going to start again. You use that as an opportunity to perfect your practices where, as you said, now that you're three years removed from 2020, you're even faster at putting out the chicken at your Chinatown location than you were in 2019. Yeah, and it's at a higher quality too. It's crazy because it's all about perspective and how you see it. You can see it as a loss and you can see it like, oh, what are we going to do? You know, like this is terrible. Or you can see it as like, okay, guys, buckle up. We're going to start focusing on this, this, and this because these are areas of improvement that we need to improve upon. Or these are areas that aren't necessarily taught to chefs or operators, but that I've noticed throughout my career is a big fallacy in kitchens is how to communicate and how the staff communicates with each other and showing respect and making it a really pleasant environment to work in because then you get better results from your employees. So 100%, I think that's really fascinating. I didn't know that about fasting. And that's actually documented where it's true. Like It's not just like a hypothesis. It's an actual process. Yeah, they've done research on people who fasted anywhere from two days to 10 days to 20 days. They've looked at the cells within the bodies and autophagy is, is a real thing. It's something that where when the body does not have to expend the energy and time in order to process food, it allows those cells to focus inward on recovering, recycling cells, getting rid of dead cells and improving themselves. That's awesome. That, that's really cool. And on a cell level, if that's happening, I mean, I'm sure on a business level, and on a, like a human level, it's possible for sure. So that's a great analogy to bring up in this case, because I, I feel like it really hits the nail on the head there. The organism of Helen Reyes experienced autophagy. Yeah, it's funny. When I was a kid, I always, or not a kid, but when I first started out, I would tell my wife all the time, like, I feel like restaurants are like these organisms or these babies. Mm. And every day it's born and then it, every night it dies. And then it, it's a cycle of life. And so when the morning dishwasher, he has his keys, he opens up the door, you know, and he starts mopping the floors, cleaning and setting up the tables. And then you go through prep, all that stuff. Then the restaurant gets busy. People are eating in it. Then the PM dishwasher is mopping, setting the tables back, the chairs back on the tables. It's a very organism-like structure that I see restaurants as. Three days ago, I went to your Chinatown location strictly for research purposes, I promise. And Matt, who is your executive sous chef, he originally, just for our audience, started out as an Uber driver who literally became so obsessed with Howlin' Rays that he kept driving Uber just to feed his Howlin' Rays habit. 
and eventually found his way to working for you. Now as your executive sous chef, he was in front of the counter personally handing out each individual order to customers. He had no idea who I was. He didn't know I was going to be speaking with you. And yet he took time to talk with me, ask me how my day was going. And I have to say, all of the conversations I've had, again, whether it's with Julian, Mario, Allison, etc., were instigated by the employees, by the staff themselves. And I've never experienced that at really any other, I don't know if fast casual is the right word, really at any other restaurant I've been to. So I just want to call that out because you've been speaking a lot about the sense of community that you pride yourself on creating at Howland. And I've witnessed that firsthand and I can see it happen whenever I go. Yeah. And it's amazing because it's like Matt, when he first started, was not necessarily outspoken or didn't know to how to have conversations like that as well as he does now. And when you can offer an employee and you can offer a human something other than just, you know, money and, and food, you know, but also wisdom and knowledge and self-betterment, that's when you get real like long-term employees and a very healthy structure within a business because not only are you providing for them and they're providing obviously labor for you that's beneficial for the company, but you're also providing something that they can take and have for the rest of their life. And it's almost like selfless because obviously you want your employees to be the best they can be and you want to retain them. But sometimes you can share with them these things that will make them outgrow the current roles that they're in because they learn so quickly and things like that. And it's okay. It's not something to be afraid of. The fact that you are offering it though and sharing that wisdom with them is in its own rawest form, hospitality. That's being hospitable to your employees. That is providing them with nourishment for their mind and nourishment for their personal lives. And I feel like that's a big aspect and why it wasn't as hard for us during COVID is because you know the staff wanted to stay and work with us and they valued their time at the company. And so hearing that is is awesome you know that that you're able to go to the both restaurants and have those interactions the hard part is with covid is that it desensitized us a little bit to those human interactions where now it's more transactional a little bit and people aren't used to someone saying hey nice sweater or hey i like that hat where'd you get it they don't know how to respond to that. Whereas in the South, you go to get gas, the cashier's talking for three minutes about her cat. And <laughs> that's normal. Different vibe, yeah. That's what I wanted to bring in our own format and why culture is obviously very important to us. Why I wanted to bring that to LA because that, which I saw in the South, that banter and that human interaction where it's not so transactional, LA does not have as much, you know? And on that note of not just bringing the food that started in Nashville, Tennessee, but also the culture, this question is going to require a bit of historical groundwork. You've mentioned it a bit, but I want to go in, into detail for our audience who might not understand the history of Nashville hot chicken. It first debuted to the public around 1936 at what was then called simply the Barbecue Chicken Shack, which since 1980 has been more aptly named Prince's Hot Chicken Shack. And the history behind that first ever hot chicken dish is, as you've mentioned, the, the stuff of legend. So Thornton Prince, by his family's own admission, was a bit of a womanizer back in the, the days of the Great Depression. One night he was out late, and when he came back, perhaps smelling of another woman's perfume, his girlfriend, probably a bit angry with him, doused his breakfast of fried chicken in the hottest spices she had in her kitchen. Likely to her dismay, Thornton loved the dish, and soon after opened his chicken shack. While Nashville was heavily segregated at the time, soon there were so many white customers stopping by, many of them local country musicians playing at the nearby Grand Old Opry, 
Prince built a second dining section in the back of the restaurant for white folks to eat at. But the restaurant really started to gain citywide and even national fame once Thornton's great niece, Andre Prince Jeffries, took over in 1980. She's now 76 and a Nashville icon. But Howlin Ray's was the first Nashville hot chicken restaurant on the West Coast, as we mentioned earlier. And now you can't throw a rock in the LA metro area without hitting a hot chicken shop. I won't name drop, but there are literally dozens of Nashville hot chicken joints within the 20 mile radius of where I live. I know you're friends with Andre's niece, Kim Prince, who owns Hotville Chicken here in LA. What connection, Johnny, do you feel personally to the nearly 100-year-old history of Nashville's most famous native cuisine? And what duty, if any, do you feel in carrying on and doing right by that culinary legacy? I did a dinner with Kim and it was honoring Andre. It was one of her first visits in a long, long time to Los Angeles. And there's video. I think Mona Holmes from Eater got some video of me and her banter, just chopping up back and forth. And whenever I go there, I had a, so many interactions with her on so many different levels where like, she would joke because she saw I had the hottest one. And you know, she said that you actually didn't have the hottest one because the hottest one is in my car, the seasoning. I'm bringing it back here. We always had this banter back and forth. But in terms of my duty and what I feel responsible in terms of honoring that family and that legacy and that dish is when it's something historical like that, you can't necessarily elevate it because it's already a titan. It's already an icon. But the way I think and and my mentality is how do I share this dish with people? Obviously do it in my own, because I'm not like an individual that doesn't want to create. Me creating is cooking and that's very important for any human being is to create and do what it is they love to do. And so for me, I love cooking and that's my form of expression. So I do have my own two cents on whether, you know, I like this about this dish or this about this because of my career. But my duty is to just uphold the highest integrity for the dish and elevate it while keeping its original intentions and why we still have quarters on the menu is because that's what hot chicken is and was born upon, you know, was those quarter pieces that you put in a brown bag in the morning and drive to your job and then eat it for lunch five hours later. Having that and also educating whether it's the customers and keeping it consistent with Nashville and and what I've tasted in, in my experiences, the one word answer is integrity. My duty with hot chicken would be answered best by having the most integrity in what we do because by serving hot chicken, we feel like it is a responsibility, especially with first timers having hot chicken for the first time, to do our, the best we can do with that dish. But also to pay respect to where it came from and to honor that as well, which is you know why we are very involved with like Kim Prince and the Prince family and and everyone in Nashville, even you know like whether it's Pepper Fire or Aki, you know like we can FaceTime with her and we're so involved with Nashville. We even thought about opening in Nashville. Because we thought it'd be fun to have an LA version of hot chicken out there. We are shining light on a dish that we did not necessarily create. It's our version of it. And we want to shine the best light on it so that more people can learn about it and the history behind it and how comical it is and the origins and just everything about it. I mean, they were they were in the graveyard business before doing restaurants like like funerals and everything. And I remember talking to her on a recent trip, flying some employees out there because we, we bring our employees out to Nashville to show them because how do you teach LA kids about Southern hospitality and hot chicken without them boots on the ground, you know? 
you honor the dish by respecting the dish and you respect the dish by making the best possible version that you can so that anyone who's having Nashville hot chicken for the first time and they happen to be having it at Howland Ray's has the best possible experience with the cuisine that they possibly can have. Yeah, and then hopefully it inspires them to actually venture out and go do a hot chicken tour. And it's funny because it, my DMs on Instagram are mostly people asking where I recommend, where to go, all that stuff. And it's so amazing. And then there's a, another portion of DMs. Hey, I want to start a hot chicken restaurant. You guys inspired us to start a hot chicken restaurant and all that stuff. And still, you have to respond with positivity and not be mad about that, you know, because like with Andre not being mad about us doing it and embracing it and having her blessing, I know how important that is to Amanda and myself. So it's cool. There's so many mouths to feed in the world that all you can really focus on is doing the best you can to uphold your standards and achieve your goals and your aspirations. And for us, it is something that when I pass away, I want to still be around. And I feel like the best way I could do that is by not having 40 or 50 of them, but merely having two or three or four badass locations that are just super on point with everything from the customers to the employees to the food. And so, yeah, that's why we play. Yeah. I mean, it all comes down to a scarcity mindset versus an abundance mindset. And some people focus on, oh, how are we going to slice up this pie so that everyone gets a slice? But there's another way to look at it, which is you can always bake more pie or in this case, bake more chicken. So we've got two questions before I let you go, Johnny, and I've really appreciated your time. The internet is rife with people sharing their stories about the moment Howlin' Ray's Hot Chicken changed their lives. You know, they have that before Howlin' and after Howlin' moment. And I'm sure once you perfected your recipes, you knew the food was good personally. But what was the moment, if you can remember it, like the when and the where, that you knew a gear had shifted? that things had changed when you knew like, okay, it's not just I know and Amanda knows this food is good, but something has caught fire. Yeah, I think two different moments. One is when I'd wake up and look on the cameras and see like people queuing up at like 6 a.m., 7 a.m. And just having this feeling of like gratitude and not knowing if the next day that would happen or, you know, it was a weird feeling. It was just like, it was a beautiful feeling in the sense of, wow, people are willing to you know, show up that early and wait for this experience of the food and the hospitality. But the other moment, very profound, weird moment that I had was in the restaurant and I was serving a bunch of people and we were just joking with some of the customers and cooking them up, making some random dishes as they're sitting on the counter in reference to the conversation and things like that. And then I remember looking around and thinking like, holy shit, like this is going to blow up because it's such a beautiful thing. The line worked in our favor and disfavor because you'd have people that would go to the cashier and be like, this better be freaking amazing. I just waited 45 minutes or I just waited an hour and a half. This better be on point. So with that pressure put upon us, you know, we had to be perfect on cashier, on expediting, on execution. And it made it where it elevated us higher than we thought we could be. And so it worked in our favor because of our mindset, because of how we saw things where we stepped up to the challenge. We didn't you know, succumb to it. Not only are we serving guests, but we also have to like mind read them and be like, okay, is this person upset because they wait in line? So I'm going to hook them up with something extra. Or is this person you know, really seeking the heat you know, and really wants to dive into that? Let's do a little fun little tasting while they're sitting here at the counter while we're serving all these people, also making them feel special and individual in that sense. 
So there was a moment in the restaurant where I looked around and thought, wow, this is going to blow up. And then we'd have guys come in and we had an open kitchen recording everything and seeing our like layout and stuff like that because we had an open kitchen. Traditionally, hot chicken restaurants had closed kitchens, you know, and everything was like kept secret, like in the back. So th- that was another aspect to, I think it's virality is, is by having that openness of a kitchen. But those two moments definitely come to mind in answering that question. All right. This last question is kind of a twofer. So we just looked back into the past of a defining moment of Hal and Ray's history, that pivot point. I want this last question to be about the future. What's your vision for the future of Helen Ray's? And to go back to what you said earlier about how the restaurant has had a cascading effect on you as a human being, what's the future for you personally? You know, because five years ago, there was no Pasadena location. I think you were actually looking at Culver City. There was no Adidas sneaker. There were no clothing collabs that I can recall. Obviously, there's a lot you can't anticipate. You can't see the future, at least to my knowledge, or what might come to pass. But where would you like to be five years from now in 2028 as both the co-head of Helen Ray's and as a person, as Johnny? I feel like five years from now, if I'm in the same situation that I'm at now, I'm happy, but I know I won't be because of who I am as a person. Who I am as a person is always trying to get better and improve, whether it's take on you know another language, whether it's improve health personally, whether it's improve employees' mindsets and help them with their personal struggles. So I most likely will not be in the same situation that I am in five years, but I am happy enough with the current structure that it's a very healthy organism in terms of the company and growing the company in the next kind of few steps that we have in the works. We do plan on opening in Monterey, Mexico, a location and doing the exact same thing that we're doing here, which is introducing a city, a dish, serving it at the highest level of integrity. This deal has been quite some time in the making because typically people want to open up 20 or 30. I was very adamant about like, we're going to do one and we're going to make it about the city and it like mix in the culture of that city and, and the employees that are working there with certain design and branding and things like that and make it culturally impactful, not just a franchise dropped in kind of thing. So we have that. And then we, I think it was last year or two years ago, I had the goal of having most of my upper management above six figures. And now that's accomplished. And I feel very proud of that, that we're able to to offer that, but also that they're receiving that as the individuals that they are. And a big part of that has been through their growth. And I see a huge opportunity as a leader and a mentor and, and someone who who they look up to, a responsibility of providing them and feeding them with more information and more challenges and more opportunities for growth. So that's a big aspect to my current role within the company is making them better than I was working in certain stations. And that's a big part of my day-to-day operations is the investment of my time and energy into these other individuals, irregardless if they do decide to move on or, or not. But Having that as part of my responsibility within the company improves so many different aspects to the restaurant and to the company that I definitely see that as super valuable. I think it was Gary Vee that mentioned like if you want to be really, really successful in life is learn how to basically be an HR person, like learn how to communicate, learn how to inspire, learn how to 
dive into the issues that they're experiencing, whether in the workplace or not, and offer insight. And so I feel like the, the more opportunities that come as I'm doing my day-to-day within the company, the better I'm going to become at it. And I'm very excited about that because I've, I've seen a lot of growth within our core group of individuals. And it's it's very inspiring for me because it's like cooking. It's like giving them a plate of food that's just executed so well and seeing them smile and enjoy it. Instead of a plate of food, you're giving them time and energy and advice or different ideas to percolate on and, and, and really think about to improve themselves. So in the future, I would love to see them owning property and help them achieve that goal of getting a piece of land and houses and stuff like that. Because the success story for me on our core group of individuals that have been you know, really ride or die, having these lives that are just really great, lives that you don't hear about restaurant workers having is very inspiring and exciting and gives me a lot of joy. So I think that's a big goal of mine. And then obviously, you know, growing the business and expanding and offering more. We have so many different things that we don't currently offer, like on Postmates or within the restaurant that we are working on improving and and improving our techniques too. Like just because we're serving it, how we're serving it now doesn't mean there's a better way to do it. I mean, we've changed on micro scales, so many different aspects for improvement. I mean, that's why I say today, like the quality of the product of our food is higher than it's ever been. And a big aspect of that is having a team. And so investing in the team, obviously why I'm saying investing in them, but also our knowledge of vendors, supply chains. We recently came out with our own canned version of sweet tea on sweet tea and lemonade. And it's like, we're just getting better and better and better at what we do. And there's so many different opportunities and so many things that are thrown our way that sometimes we do and sometimes we don't because it all has to kind of align with that singular goal of why we started the company and what we're trying to accomplish. I can count on maybe just two hands, one and a half hands, the truly memorable meals I've had over the decades that I've been on this earth. And I count (laughs) with great significance, Howlin' Ray's multiple times over to be one of those meals. And being able to make memories in someone's mind that last for their entire life is a truly special thing. And the memories that I've made at Howlin' Ray's are not just because of the food itself, but I've made memories with the staff, with the friends and family that I brought with me, and even the fellow customers that have sat alongside me that I don't know from Adam because they're going through the same experience that I'm going through. And there's something communal in sharing that with a stranger. So I just want to say, Johnny, thank you for all the great food. Thank you for the memories that I've made. And thank you for your time with us today. Definitely. Thank you. And I think you're doing a great job on hosting and balancing. You're very eloquent in your speech. And I'm sure your, your listeners would agree. You're doing a solid job. Keep it up. Don't stop. Hey there. If you're hearing this, you're exactly the person this message is for. I want to learn more about the Where We Go Next audience, which means I want to learn more about you and your thoughts on the show. So if you're listening right now, please send me an email at wherewegopod at gmail.com and let me know, one, what's your all-time favorite episode of the podcast and why? Two, what's your least favorite episode of the podcast and why? And three, 
where would you like to see this show go next? And hey, while you're here, if you're a fan of the show, it would make my day if you could give it a five-star rating and write a brief one or two sentence review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Thanks so much for listening. I look forward to hearing from you.